Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Robin Minter Smyers, a partner at Thompson Hine and president of the City Club's Board of Directors. I'm honored to introduce today's speaker, the author of The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, Dr. Jeremy Surrey. Article 2 of the Constitution establishes the executive branch of the federal government. Section 2 of Article 2 specifically details the powers inherent in the office of President of the United States. Disagreement among the Founding Fathers left this section short, just a scant three paragraphs, and fairly vague. As a consequence, throughout history, Presidents have frequently tested the elasticity of their powers and of the Constitution on issues concerning national security, war powers, the economy, and the push-pull interactions with the legislature. Perhaps the best way to describe the historical changes to the presidency is through this metaphor by columnist George Will, featured in a Ken Burns documentary for PBS. The presidency is like a soft leather glove, and it takes the shape of the hand that's put into it. And when a very big hand is put into it and stretches the glove, stretches the office, the glove never quite shrinks back to what it was. Today, it can be argued that the presidency glove has become very big, and current allegations surrounding President Trump and his dealings with Ukraine have once again brought to light the debate over the powers a president could and should have. It also begs a larger question. Have both the powers and responsibilities of the presidency become so large that no modern president can succeed? It's this question that Dr. Surrey explores in his book, The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office. Dr. Surrey is a leading scholar of American politics, social change, and international affairs. He currently holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he's also a professor of history and public affairs. Dr. Surrey has written or edited nine books and is a frequent contributor to major newspapers and magazines. His research and teaching have received numerous awards. In 2007, the Smithsonian Magazine named him one of America's top young innovators in the arts and sciences. Esteemed guests, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming to the stage Dr. Jeremy Surrey. Thank you so much for the wonderful introduction. Thank you, Robin, for that uh, really wonderful introduction. Um, I often think I should just stop there after an introduction <laughs> like that. Uh, I am so delighted uh, to be here. I, I have the opportunity to speak in many places, and I haven't spoken here before, and I can already tell what a very special uh, group you have here. 107 years of, of history, a wall of fame and shame out there. 
uh, this incredible mural. Uh, but most of all, uh, the political buttons. I'm a political junkie. And the collection of buttons you have out there going all the way back to the mid-19th century reminds us of something actually really important uh, for today. Democracy is built around political engagement. What those buttons show is that throughout our history, our leaders have not told us what to do. We have told them what to do. That's how democracy functions. That's why political candidates have had to always campaign in our society. Our democracy, and I'm delighted to be part of a series called Helping Democracy Thrive, our democracy has gone through many peaks and valleys uh, in its history. And in case you haven't noticed, we're perhaps in a valley uh, right now. This is the, only the fourth time in our history that we've had an impeachment inquiry in the House of Representatives. Um, we had, as you know, uh, two presidents who were impeached. We had one who resigned before a vote for impeachment. We've never had a president convicted uh, of impeachment. Uh, but only four times have we gone through this process in 230 years, uh, which is actually quite extraordinary. I'm not in my uh, presentation going to say very much about the current president. Uh, I have a lot to say about him if you ask questions. <laughs> Uh, but I'm going to present research to you, and I think it's really important that we distinguish uh, fact from opinion. Uh, there are facts in the world. My book has footnotes. You can go look at the evidence. If you read something in my book and you don't believe it, it's perfectly fine. Email me. I will send you the evidence. I believe that's my job. No, no, I believe that's my job, right? Uh, facts matter. Facts matter. So what I'm going to present to you for the next 20 minutes or so is a factual account of how the office of the presidency has changed over time. Because the key point of departure for us today is that the office is very different now from what the founders intended. It has become different with every generation. And one of the challenges we face today is that we've inherited an office from another time, and we have not adjusted that office to the needs of our current time. And much of our discussion today and this is as close to political as I'll get in my presentation, much of our discussion today is off base because it's too often about the person, not about the office. Where I want to close today and where I close the book is using the history of the presidency and the history of our democracy to get us to ask better questions about the kinds of leaders we need today. We argue over personality and ideology, which Ralph Waldo Emerson would tell us are the hobgoblins of small minds. Real analysis is looking at a world filled with problems, challenges, and opportunities, and trying to build the institutions that can appropriately address those personalities, those issues, those challenges, and opportunities. And the institutions will nurture the right kinds of leaders. The single greatest insight a historian can offer you is to say that actually circumstances make us more than our personalities and ideologies do. We like to think that we're in control of our world. But in fact, our political system has evolved over time to produce the kinds of leaders that reflect the times we're in, the challenges we're in, the opportunities that we have. And the genius of our system is not that a group of men with powdered wigs sat down in Philadelphia 240 years ago and figured out all the answers. It's actually that they created a system that could adjust and serve the needs of the people rather than the people serving the needs of the system. The system should serve the needs of the people rather than the people serving the needs of the system. The Founding Fathers challenge was to come up with a system that would evolve and a system that would be able to bring a country together in its common differences. And I also want to focus on that point, common differences. 
We are, in fact, no more divided today than we have been in our past. We're, in fact, less divided. That seems strange. Dan is saying, what? Get off the stage. <laughs> Invitation revoked. <laughs> we are less divided. We are less divided. You could go anywhere in this country now and speak the same uh, poor English, and people will understand you. Right? You can split your infinitives, use passive voice, all these things you're not supposed to do in college. You can do these things, and people will understand you. You can get a latte macchiato pretty much anywhere. I was in Little Rock, Arkansas, drinking a latte macchiato. Right? I live in Texas. I can go to all parts of Texas and find a Starbucks uh, around me. We actually have an easier time communicating than we ever have in our history, and we exchange resources with more ease than ever before. Think back to the 18th century, where my book starts. Think back to George Washington's time, right? People living in Georgia could not understand people living in Massachusetts. It might still be true, actually, <laughs> right? Um, Catholic Marylanders would not allow their daughters to be seen in unaccompanied circumstances with high Protestants from Massachusetts. They were considered demonic. I mean, they, the only thing they really all agreed on, right, was that they hated Jews. <laughs> but beyond that, uh, we were a society then that was these United States. Until the Civil War, that's pretty much how the country was referred to, these United States, not the United States. Madison's vision in the Constitution was not a document that would perfect things and tell us what to do 240 years later. It was to create a system wherein we could work together despite and, in fact, because of our differences. We are a society built on pluralism, e pluribus unum, built on pluralism. I, as the child of immigrants from Russia and India, I don't want to live in a society where everyone agrees. In fact, truth be told, when I'm in a room where everyone agrees, I want to disagree because everyone can't be right. <laughs> right? We are a society built on pluralism, built on difference. The miracle of our system, Alexis de Tocqueville said, in what is still the best book on American democracy, Democracy in America, 1830. How many people have read it? Good. It should be mandatory for the. Dan, you haven't read it? I've read it. <laughs> de Tocqueville, de Tocqueville comes, to the, comes to the United States from France, and he notices what we would say today. Most Americans haven't read the Constitution. Most Americans don't know in the way Robin does, the way the system's supposed to work. Most Americans are not philosophically informed in the way the French think they are. They always think people are more sophisticated <laughs> than us. But the genius of democracy, Tocqueville says, is that these Americans who are so different, so he's, he's fascinated by all the different religious sects and others, that they find a way to work together for common interest despite their differences. And at the center of that has always been the presidency. At the center of that, Congress has always had a divisive influence, right? Because you elect people from separate districts, right? This was actually the point of Congress, right? To represent localities. That's that, how the House works. The president was created in Article II, created by the founders in the most creative part of the founding as the individual and the office that would bring the country together, bring the country together. There had never been anything like it before. This was one of the new insights of my research, that in fact the word executive was not used before George Washington. He's truly the first executive in the world. Uh, the word executive was used as an adjective. If you go back and you read your Edmund Burke or your John Locke, not as a noun. And then if you think about it, it makes sense. Why would you have an executive? Kings owned everything. They weren't executives, right? The realm was theirs. 
The plantation owner was not an executive. He owned things. By the way, notice how sports teams, we still use the plantation language. It's an interesting thing, right? It's one of the only places in business where you're the owner of the players, right? Um, that's another side story. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the notion of an executive is invented by the founders to bring unity in diversity, to bring unity in diversity. Article two of the Constitution actually gives the president very little power, very little power. Robin referred to this uh, well already, right? It's actually far less detailed than the articles on the legislative branch or the judiciary. Most of Article II is actually about how to elect a president. And by the way, as I show in my book and as others have shown, the founders just kind of threw the election part together. They couldn't figure out how to do it, right? The word electoral college is not in the Constitution. They created electors because they couldn't figure out how someone would get elected president because they expected that the large states would each push their own candidate. And so how would you find it, get anyone who would have a majority? So they created what they thought was going to be a temporary process of electors. And as you know also, right, the vice president was originally elected separately, which is how you could get president and vice president, Jefferson and Burr, for example, <laughs> who clearly did not like each other. The president was to be, in the words of James Madison, a citizen, patriot, king without the king's powers. A citizen, patriot, king without the king's powers, which is to say, he was to do what the kings did that they wanted, was bring the country together, give people a common identity. But he was not to rule over people. In fact, the president has no power in the Constitution to make anyone do anything. He doesn't even have the power to make anyone join the military. Through 1863, the president of the United States had to get soldiers from where? From the states. It's the Conscription Act of 1863 that Lincoln passes and gets through Congress that gives the president for the first time the ability to conscript. First two and a half years of the Civil War, Lincoln has to go hat in hand to the governor of Ohio. That's why he has Salmon Chase in his cabinet, right? He has to get people, the states, to give him the soldiers. The president was created, the office was created to be a figure who brought Americans together and invested in common purposes for the country. The three things Washington focuses on as president. The three things he focuses on as president. First, creating a national economy. This is the story of Hamilton that Lin-Manuel Miranda tells so well, right? It's not a debate between Jefferson and Hamilton. Miranda overstates that a little bit for dramatic effect. It's about an investment in creating a common economic system, creating a common capital market, right? That's what the federal government taking over the debts is about. Second thing Washington invests in, creating a road system, infrastructure, infrastructure. Third thing he invests in, is an education system. He actually proposes that the United States, this is not in the Constitution, this is Washington's proposal, that the United States have a university of the United States and create the leading higher education system in the world, which we do create, which we do create. Why? Because higher education would offer citizens the ability of all different backgrounds to make their way in the world. That vision of a very limited president bringing people together is the vision that survives. We can talk about Andrew Jackson. If I had more time right now, I would. Uh, there's more of that in the book if you're interested. Um, that vision really reaches its 2.0, its second form, with Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln is a poor boy born on the frontier who recognizes that poor men like himself need a different kind of executive. Why do they need a different kind of executive? because a system of slavery and a system that does not have opportunity provided for them leaves them far behind. The way to think about Lincoln's background 
is the search for opportunity and trying to create a national system that will provide opportunity for poor white men as well as African Americans and others who wouldn't have opportunity otherwise. Lincoln as president is all about opportunity. He is the first president from this new party. You might have heard of this party, the Republican Party, which was founded on principles of free labor, free soil, free men. Everyone should work and be paid for their work. Poor white men in Kentucky were not paid because slaves did the work. They should be paid for their work. Free soil, they should be able to use their money to buy land. And then free men, they should be part of the electoral system. They should be able to vote. In many states, particularly in the Midwest, what was then called the Far West, uh, it was Republican parties that first supported suffrage for women, giving them, the, giving them the right to vote so they could be active, engaged citizens. Lincoln did three things as well as president that changed the country and changed the presidency. He turned the presidency from a unifying figure into an active nation builder. Or another way to think about it is that Lincoln is the first CEO president. And that shouldn't surprise us because as a lawyer, who did he work for? He worked for the railroads, which were actually the first corporations in the United States. Lincoln created with the Morrill Land Grant Act, pushed through Congress because the Democrats were not in Congress anymore with secession. The Morrill Land Grant Act created the most important set of American institutions perhaps in our entire history, our public universities. With the Morrill Land Grant Act, the federal government gave every state land. The states sold that land for cash that they then used to pay for their universities. That is how you get, in this state, it's Ohio University, right? That's how you get Michigan State, University of Wisconsin, Cal Berkeley. Uh, in Texas, there's this other school in College Station. I can never remember their name. <laughs> Um, between 1865 and 1975, the United States will have the highest growth rate in higher education in any society. Our public universities will produce more CEOs by a factor of three than private universities. And our economic growth will be unmatched. There's a pretty strong correlation between higher education, development of business, and development of economic wealth. And Cleveland is front and center of that. Cleveland's in the center. The Midwest, the story of the Midwest is that story, right? It's the great public universities, the Big Ten universities that do a lot um, of this. Second thing Lincoln does, he invests in the railroads. First federal subsidy program is the railroads. Second federal subsidy program is Civil War pensions. Those are the first two subsidies. Third thing Lincoln does, land. Land. The Homestead Act, 1862, gives land to any family that goes and lives on the land in places like Kansas, South Dakota, and Oklahoma. I mean, it's the only reason anyone would go to Oklahoma, right? <laughs> Families, if you live on the land for five years, you own it. You're not allowed in those five years to sell it to a developer. You have to maintain ownership over it, but you get to have the land. Ladies and gentlemen, tens of thousands, by some counts, hundreds of thousands of Italian, German, and yes, Mexican immigrants become landowners before they're citizens. You did not have to be a citizen to get Homestead Act land. That was the point. That was the point. You come, you work, you stay. You come, you work, you stay. It's a pretty good immigration policy. It's actually what fuels our growth as a society. There's one thing and one thing alone that's made America great. It's that we've always had new talent coming in, new hungry talent coming in hungry talent coming into our society. Remember, all those Mexicans who became landowners, they were landowners before they were citizens. Lincoln transforms the presidency then from a 
unifier into a nation builder. He has an economic plan for opportunity for more citizens. And by 1869, four years after his death, the Transcontinental Railroad is finished. And that's all you need to know to explain the next 100 years of American growth and strength. We get strong, fat, and muscular because of the railroad. Because of the railroad. What does the railroad do? What it still does today, except it's not the railroad anymore. It creates the single largest integrated market in the world. Right? We can pool our talent. You talented people in this room can go anywhere in this country and work, and you can draw talent from anywhere in this country, right? No other society can do that on the scale we do. That's all you need to know to understand the next 100 years of our strength. The third moment of the presidency. We could talk a lot about Theodore Roosevelt. I love Theodore Roosevelt. I won't because once I start, I won't stop. <laughs> warn, me, warn you on that. Uh, think about Roosevelt, though, as Lincoln uh, again, as a double Lincoln in a sense, right? What the Panama Canal does is it takes the railroad, the extension of the railroad, and brings it, makes it a hemispheric, connecting the oceans, the Pacific and the Atlantic. Franklin Roosevelt is the third real moment in the change of the presidency, and it's the presidency we've inherited. It's the office that we still live with. Roosevelt takes a presidency that was designed to unify the country, and then with Lincoln designed to create opportunity for Americans, and now he makes that presidency also into a healer for Americans. He's the great national healer. What Roosevelt recognizes is the historical insight we all have to keep in mind, which is that over the last four to five hundred years, capitalist economies have been the best producers of wealth and innovation in the world. But every capitalist economy has left large numbers of people behind. So I'm a capitalist because I know that history, but I'm also a believer in welfare policies because there will be losers. Joseph Schumpeter said this, right? The great Austrian economist. Capitalism is about creative destruction. So there are going to be people destroyed. There, there is going to be loss. And you must have a system on our scale that helps those who are left behind. They are often left behind for reasons that are not their own fault. I grew up in a poor immigrant family in New York City. My parents still have one retirement policy. It's called me. <laughs> right? Um, I got to go to a magnet high school in New York City, Stuyvesant High School. I got to go to great universities on fellowships, on fellowships. I'm enormously grateful. It's amazing I get to do what I do. It's amazing I get to do what I do. There were at least 10 other people equally talented and smart at every step of the way, and I got lucky. Yes, you have to be good, but you also have to be fortunate, right? Our system has to help those who are left behind. That's what Franklin Roosevelt pioneers in the presidency turning the president from more than just a unifier and a promoter of growth, but now into a healer. The New Deal is all about that. The New Deal is all about that. Let's just say two words about the, or two sentences about the Civilian Conservation Corps. One example of the exploding New Deal agencies Roosevelt creates. Civilian Conservation Corps, with money from the federal government, puts more than six million young men between ages 18 and 29 to work in camps, gets them off the street, has them building uh, pathways in national parks, if you go to a national park, planting trees. The Works Progress Administration builds schools. My kids in Austin, Texas went to a middle school built by the WPA. The UT Tower, if you've seen it, was built by the WPA. These were projects designed to put people to work, to give them a job, not simply because they needed an income, but because to have a job is to have an identity, to have a place, to be a stakeholder in society. Roosevelt was not about handouts. Roosevelt was about the president and the executive agencies helping every person become a stakeholder in our society, engaging everyone in the process. Ladies and gentlemen, that's why we won World War II. Pretty much all historians will tell you 
Americans went into World War II without the best trained army. Right? They were heroic, but they were not the best trained army. The Nazis had more men under arms in France in December of 41 than we had in our entire army. We were not prepared for war. What we were prepared for was to work together as a society despite our differences to fight difficult enemies. You win wars by the kind of people you have, not the arms you put in their hands. You win wars with the kind of people you have. That's, I think, why we won the Cold War, too. Not because we were perfect, we were far from perfect. But pretty much everyone around the world knew that in our imperfections, our system was probably better than the Soviet one. You could ask the Germans to choose. You could see a test case there in East, East and West Germany. The problem we have entered into is not just a problem of the particular man who's in the office, but of an office that is not built for the needs we have today. The successes of the Washingtons, the Lincolns, and the Roosevelts don't necessarily serve our needs today. We are a world, I'm now telling you what you know, that operates very differently. We're a much more diverse country. We're a country where people are not as locally place-centered as they were before. The Electoral College makes almost no sense, not simply because of the inequities, but because it defines people by their place. Most of us are not defined by one place anymore. We work in multiple locations. We connect with people in different ways. We also have challenges that are very different. There's no place in the Constitution, nor is there any place in Franklin Roosevelt's thinking, for climate change. It's not because they were bad people. It's because there was a different time. It was a different time. Theirs was not a world either with the kinds of intense international competition we have today, with issues of cybersecurity. Theirs was not a world where we were communicating in the way we communicate, where the secrets and our lives, our lights, everything are controlled by this cyberspace that doesn't look like the political space that they operated in. We have a presidency, whether it is the presidency of Barack Obama or, or uh, Donald Trump, a presidency that reflects institutional history that doesn't match our own. My historical plea then is that we use that history not just to talk about who's president, but to talk about what kind of presidency we want. What kind of office do we want? Let's not try to find Superman or Superwoman. I've already married Superwoman, she's my wife, sorry. Uh, let's not try to find the super person. Let's try to find the changes in the office. The Washingtons, Lincolns, and Roosevelts changed the office for their time. We need to do that today. We need a young president. We need an innovative president. We need a president who understands our people, our society, and can make the office connect with people. Do not believe where I started. Do not believe we are more divided. We are not. We have offices and people who divide us and emphasize those divisions. We can find new people who will redesign offices and institutions to bring us together in new ways. And, and the, the City Club shows that, right? You're not the City Club of 107 years ago, Dan, right? You're a new City Club, and you bring people together. You bring pe we can do this. We can do this as a society. We need to invest in thinking about those institutions. So two final historical lessons, and then I'll be open to your questions, criticisms, thoughts. Two final historical lessons then. It is not the individual that makes the historical change. It's the institutions. And our challenge today is that we are rapidly attacking our institutions without building anything in their place, without building anything in their place. Second historical lesson, change comes with generations. 
change comes with generations. I'm sorry to say that uh, middle-aged, I, I, I don't really consider myself middle-aged, but I guess I should. <laughs> middle-aged middle men don't make change. Young women, young men, people from different backgrounds make change. If there's nothing you take away from today's lecture except this, please go out and find young people to get involved in the political process and encourage them to bring change. I do not know a young person who doesn't care about climate change. Every one of them will do far better than every one of the members of the Senate who are average age 68 and millionaires. The young people will do a far better job than they will. Historical change comes through institutions and generations, and we have the tools in front of us. We have a system where we can remake our institutions, and we have talented young people everywhere in our society. And I'm so glad so many of them are here. I'm glad you guys came. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Today, we're listening to a forum with Dr. Jeremy Surrey, the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also the author of The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via the radio broadcast or live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our staff will try to work it into the program. Holding the microphones today are content coordinator Bliss Davis and director of programming Stephanie Jansky. May we have the first question, please? Uh, and please tell me your name so uh, I can be Yeah, polite. Vince Lombardo. I'm a proud member of the City Club of Cleveland. Yay. Um, I'm also, uh, I was a history major, and I, and I consider myself a history buff, and I really appreciated your talk, and I appreciated this particularly with the, what you said at the beginning about our country not being more divided today than it has ever been before. I am so sick of this cliche, and I, yes. don't underst I don't understand how anybody can compare 2019 to 1860 right. or 1776 and so on. Uh, my question is, uh, I think that I'm going to get us both in trouble. I think Americans are historically illiterate, and I think it gets worse every year, despite Ken Burns' documentaries and things like that. You teach history. You teach undergraduates. Uh, do you agree that Americans tend to be historically Ill illiterate? And what do you see the causes of that uh, in curriculums today in high school and so on? Great question. Thank you, Vince. Um, so I agree with your proposition that Americans are historically illiterate, uh, but I'm not sure we're more illiterate now. I think we've always been illiterate and ill-informed. De Tocqueville made this point, right? He, he, he says in Democracy in America, which I've assigned to Dan, you can test him on this soon, right? <laughs> he, he, he makes the point in there that Americans know less about democracy than their French counterparts, but yet we're better Democrats, lowercase d, he says. So, so I think we've always been ill-informed, and in fact, in some ways, I think we're better educated than we've ever been on a lot of issues. Um, here's the problem with young people. It's not actually what they don't know. It's what they're told not to know. I like to say my problem, now Vince and I are really going to be in trouble. My problem is not my students, it's their parents. It's their parents, right? Because it's their parents who are telling them, keep your head down. Don't get into trouble. Uh, don't, don't major in what you love, but major in, it's always engineering, because you'll get a better job. <laughs> because you'll get, a, and, and that, that to me is such a, 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 actually, I'm sorry to say, a short-sighted view. Because what matters more is being a citizen, right? But also, a good job today is not necessarily going to be a good job 20 years from now. I like to say you come to university to be prepared for life, not for your first job. I, I ain't going to get you your first job. 
But hopefully what I'm teaching you is going to matter when you're in your fifth job. And so I think the problem is short time horizons today. It would be better, we would certainly be better if we read more history, if people bought more of my books, that would be great, everyone would be better <laughs> off. There's no doubt about that. But what it really is, is that we have a very short time horizon today. And that short time horizon is coming from people telling young people, it's really competitive out there, get what you can while you can. And I think it's important for us to know from the wisdom of our own lives that the successful people throughout this room, you are successful not because of the first moves you made, but because of the later moves you made in your life that you were prepared for by things long in the past that you did. And so that's, I think, the issue. That's why we need to turn off the phones. We need to stop thinking about what's immediately in front of us and think longer term. Thank you for your question, Vince. Gary Moskowitz. Hi, Gary. And I also was a, a history major. Um, this is, a, this is a, a group of outstanding people. <laughs> <laughs> um, you alluded to or implied that the Electoral College as an institution is um, past its prime. Long past its prime. I would disagree with okay. you because in part, if it wasn't for the Electoral College, when you had Catholic Maryland, yes. you had Quaker Philadelphia, which was parenthetically, the second largest English-speaking city in the world That's right. at that time. That's right. You had Boston and its versus Virginia, Georgia. They would never have agreed to a union if a Boston, New York, Philadelphia were the uh, controlled. Yes. Th so that, and I think that attitude of New York, LA, parts of Texas, Chicago, sorry Cleveland, it was, you know, 150, 100 years ago, 50 years ago that the population was here, that would have be controlling. Yes, yeah. So I disagree with your point. Gary, I think it's as relevant today yes. as it was then. Gary, I agree with you. No, no, no. You, you and I might disagree on some details, but we agree on the basic point, and it was actually implied also in, in uh, the introduction we had, right, which, which is that uh, we are a representative democracy, or in other terms, a republic, lowercase r, right? And that means that we're not Athens, where every issue gets voted on by everyone. We elect representatives, and we elect representatives to make decisions for us that we hope they're better informed, and also because we need to make sure that everyone feels involved in decisions. It can't simply be that the biggest entities, the biggest cities get their way, right? So I am for a system that still preserves that. Absolutely. I didn't say get rid of the Senate. The Senate is structured that way in part. And I didn't even say go to, I, I, I'm sure I didn't say go to a full popular vote as the way you choose the president. The problem with the Electoral College as it has developed, though, is that it gives such a heavy weight to particular areas of the country that have no one in them or very few people in them that it creates a terrible disproportion, right? So a vote now in a place like Wyoming for president actually counts, I think, is like 97 times a vote in California. The ratio was like four to one at the founding. So my argument is we need to radically change it, but that there's a lot to do in between where we are now and going to just full majority vote. There's a lot we can do, and my plea and the inspiration I hope we can take is prior generations proved innovative in the institutions they built. I'm told this by business people. This is the new businesses are more innovative, right? Why can't our political system be more innovative? Why can't we find something in between? 
Yes, My sir. name is Steve Hotchkiss. Hi, Steve. I'm an economist and a history minor. Okay, well. <laughs> and a, a minus for you. And apparently, I'm far too old to remedy <laughs> our current situation. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, of the great leaders you spoke about, Washington, Lincoln, and the Roosevelts, and one of you, how much would you say they were driven by vision versus fear? Ah, great question. Great question. Uh, I think they were driven by both, um, definitely fear, because of, of, a, of a sense in each of their cases that uh, if the United States did not get it right, that uh, a lot of what we had taken for granted would disappear. Uh, they, they all saw uh, real fears. They were not apocalyptic. They did not believe that someone else was going to do this to us. They recognized the fear within that we could do this to ourselves. Right? They feared not so much foreign enemies, they feared ourselves. They feared us as a society. Right? The Federalist Papers is filled with this. Right? Uh, I think it's Madison who says famously, right, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government. But men are not angels. Um, so fear drove them, and I think fear influenced their vision. But what I would add as a third element of this is hope. You see, fear can drive you to hope. It drives me to hope every day right now. Because when I see how bad certain things look, I, I then go back to the history I study, and I say, A, we were in worse situations before, back to Vince's point, um, and we found a way to get ourselves out. And in fact, the fear can discipline us. It can wake us up. It's definitely had that effect with young people. They don't think the world's going to be better for them. They think they're going to have to make it better. So that fear of the future actually gives them hope to do something new. It's our job to invest in the hope. Uh, I'm not saying fear will go away, but we invest, and this is part of what divides us, we invest in the fear, not in the hope. That's the whole point of my talk. I could stand up here and rant about the current president, uh, but that's only going to make us more despondent, right? We can look at the history of our society and see reasons for hope, and see reasons for hope. So I want a mix of vision, fear, and hope. If you lose hope, you cannot change. And those who don't want change, they emphasize fear and take away the hope. If we can mix fear and hope, this is Franklin Roosevelt, right? We can go far. Thank you for your question. I'm William Vaudry, Hi, political William. science major, history minor. Okay, uh, again, A minus, but all right, yeah. And uh, as a member of the Cleveland Civil War Roundtable, I am clevelandcivilwarroundtable.com. I'm very proud to hear you, or very glad to hear you give uh, Washington and Lincoln their due. Yes. I'm wondering if you could change Article 2, what, what would be included in a constitutional amendment to, do, to give us the modern presidency that we need with the sort of social yes. groundwork yes. that needs to be done ahead of time? Great, great, great question. If I could change Article 2. A couple of things I would put into Article 2 would be things that I think represented what the founders intended, but where we have slid because of the vagueness of Article 2. I think it should state very clearly in our Constitution that the president cannot send Americans under arms abroad for any extended period of time without an affirmative congressional vote. The framers intended, the, the framers intended for the president to have to declare war and then go to the governors to get soldiers. The last time we declared war, ladies and gentlemen, 1941. So I guess we haven't been at war since then, right? When we have the War Powers Act and things, but that hasn't stopped the president from doing that, right? Part of it is that Congress doesn't want to stand up and vote. 
I think presidents need to, and that's actually for the purposes of when we fight wars. I think we're a better country when we have Congress voting to go to war. I also would want to put in a provision so that um, we, with only very minor exceptions, we have lawyers in the room, you yourself could write this better than I would, right? Uh, We should have to have a plan to pay for the war when we go to war. We should not go to war assuming someone else is going to pay or that another generation. There can be exceptions. But when we're not attacked ourselves, we should probably have a plan to, to pay for it. Two other things I, I would put into uh, Article 2 of the, of the, um, of the Constitution. I, I, would, I would put in there that the president um, must, when requested by Congress, provide the information Congress wants. And that's not just this president. That's been a sliding issue. And I don't know how to write this. Again, you're a lawyer. You would do better. Uh, I would want to put a limit on executive orders. There is a role executive orders play. The Emancipation Proclamation was an executive order, right? Uh, but, and this uh, goes across areas. Presidents have moved more and more to executive orders governing that way. That's not how the system's supposed to work. We need to have more constitutional backstops on that. So that's where I'd start. We could probably put together a much longer list. This is a discussion. This is a great discussion worth having as a country. That is a useful discussion for us to have. Thank you. Uh, Andy Beamer, I am also in that elite group of uh, history majors. What a group. Um, Is this like required for City Club? (laughs) We have separation of powers, and what's your opinion on the uh, effect of the Supreme Court on the executive uh, authority of the presidency in view of decisions starting with Marbury versus Madison to Dred Scott to Citizens United? So uh, it's a great question. My, my very uh, wonderful colleague, Sandy Levinson, who's someone you should bring out sometime to speak, he's one of the experts on this topic. He and I have talked about this a lot. And his view is that uh, the Supreme Court has generally, uh, in our history, been relatively conservative and de- deferential, deferential to the other branches. Um, I, I don't think that's necessarily a problem. But I do think it's very important uh, that the Supreme Court uh, allow the two other branches to do their job. It must stand up and allow them to do their job. And one of the best decisions the court made was during the Nixon uh, impeachment period, requiring the president to limit executive privilege claims so Congress could do its oversight work. If you'll remember, Nixon tried to withhold all the tapes saying they were executive privilege, and the court stepped in. I believe it was an eight to one decision. I might be wrong. I think it was eight to one, saying, Um, that uh, the president must actually turn that over so the other branch could actually do its work. I think it's really important that that the Supreme Court do that. I think the Supreme Court has to see itself, yes, being deferential to the other branches, but also promoting and protecting the separation of powers and the oversight from one branch to the other. No branch should be able to operate without oversight and, and without checks and balances. And so I hope the court will stick with that. Thank you, Andy. Hello, I'm William McLaughlin, and I'm here for diversity. I have a BS in civil engineering and worked for 35 years as an engineer. (laughs) My question deals with... Every group has affirmative action, don't you? (laughs) I'm also a member, so be careful. But uh, what I wanted to do is I believe the problem is not the executive. We have a Congress that does nothing, won't govern, passes laws so that the president, oh, set up an administrative or an agency, let them make their rules. What could the president do to get Congress to do their job, especially passing a budget by September 30th to fund the government, 
for the full year? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, and it's one of the one of the worst parts of our system recently has been that we're not actually operating on a on a budgeting calendar. We're we're, we're going by continuing resolution to continuing resolution. Um, part of part of the issue part part of the issue the students have to take their bus to get back to class to learn more history. Um, part part of the part of the issue is that. We've had the worst of uh, executive behavior within the legislature. There is nothing in the Constitution. The word filibuster does not appear in the Constitution. The Constitution does not address anywhere the role and powers of the Senate Majority Leader or the Speaker of the House. Those are all internal rules. And what has happened over time, as the old system of seniority broke down, uh, and there were problems with the old system of seniority, as that system has broken down, the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader on either side of the aisle have made themselves, in essence, dictators of those legislative institutions. So take uh, a very simple issue, really, gun control. It's simple because 90% of Americans actually favor stronger background checks. You get beyond that and there's a lot of disagreement. But 90% of Americans, there are very few things 90% of Americans agree on, right? 90% of Americans actually think we should do more stringent background checks, and we probably shouldn't let people on terrorist watch lists and people who are known to be uh, threats to their community buy guns, right? 90%, but it doesn't come to the floor because the Senate Majority Leader doesn't bring it to the floor. It would pass tomorrow. It would pass tomorrow. So part of what I'm saying is this sort of ex excessive executive authority has to be taken out of the legislature. We have to go back to a Congress which actually reflects the interests of the broader body. There's actually much more agreement there on budgeting issues, on, gun, on guns, on health care, than the leadership allows. And that is also because the leadership sees itself as working too closely with the president, not working in the interests of the larger, of the larger Congress. Second, I, I, I would say that um, members of Congress probably, probably uh, should have more limits on their fundraising so there'd be more chance for real competition. And gerrymandering would have to be addressed too, right? I mean, these are all the systemic institutional problems. Gerrymandering has always existed. Money in politics has always existed, but the scale, the, the scale has changed. A few people now can buy elections in a way they couldn't before. And with technology, you can design districts where you truly get anyone elected you want. Uh, if we change that and we had a more representative body, we would have far better decision-making coming out of it. Again, back to my point that Vince brought up too, right? We're not as divided as our Congresses. Our Congress is much more divided, 51-49, than the people are on most issues when we go forward. So if we change the way the institution operates, we will get much more representation. I predict that's going to happen. I actually predict that that's going to happen because Americans so strongly believe that. So that's, that's my answer for now. Thank you. Robin, Robin. Minter Smyers, I'm was a government major. Okay, all right, close <laughs> enough. Close enough. So you're a historian, but I'd like you to try to look into the future. What will be the book that you are going to write about the Trump presidency? So I, I'm, I'm working on that book now, actually. Uh, and uh, I'm calling it uh, Democratic Renewals. Uh, I think we're in a moment of renewing our democracy. I think we're gonna look back um, 10 to 20 years from now. Hopefully my book will be done before then. Um, <laughs> And uh, we're going to say that this moment actually uh, was a moment, uh, a dangerous moment, a moment of a lot of pain, a moment where we deviated from any of our principles. And there might be some really serious long-term consequences, especially around issues of climate, nuclear proliferation. North Korea just tested a submarine-launched missile the other day. That's a real problem. That's a real problem, right? So we will see long-term damage. This is not necessarily a happy ending. 
but we will also see a more vibrant democracy as a consequence. Because the gift of Trump is that it has awakened people to the importance of these issues. We are having a, a lesson, a national lesson, in the Constitution every day. Doesn't mean we're all agreeing on that. But what I do think it's doing is it's awakening people to these issues, and we're becoming a very different country in our racial makeup, in our religious makeup, in the role that different genders play in our society. And I think that is going hand in hand. It's accelerating that change. Uh, we would not have had uh, the Me Too movement if we didn't have Donald Trump. And the Me Too movement will in the long run be more important than Donald Trump, I think. Professor Shuri. Yes. Thank you for your active participation in building a constituency for a progressive evolution of our national institutions. The Constitution envisions amendment as a meaningful part of that evolution. In my opinion, as a lawyer, it has become <laughs> impractical. Yeah. The recent amendments that have survived are very technical. Uh, and the chance the Electoral College will be changed by amendment, I think, is remote. But we are entering, uh, we're not helpless. We can negotiate arrangements that yes. work around. Yes. And uh, the compact among states to yep. adjust the outcome of national voting for the presidency is maybe a perfect example. Yes. So I ask you if negotiation uh, among inter interested parties <laughs> pointed toward compacts are superseding the whole realm of constitutional amendment. Yes, I, I think it's a great, uh, it's a great uh, point. And I think this is where I see some of the renewal occurring. People looking, and this has happened in every generation of renewal in our society, looking to not, get, not discard the institutions, but find new ways to make the institutions work. And so the state compact, I don't remember how many, 20 some odd states now have pledged that they will give their electoral votes to the winner of the popular vote, not necessarily the winner in their state, right? That's a way of getting, getting around this. Think of what states have been doing, the federal government's trying to stop them now, on emission standards, right? Think about California has been so far, and hopefully they'll be able to continue to do this, been incredibly effective at negotiating to do the kind of environmental protection that the federal government uh, is not doing. Um, there's a lot of space for that in our system. I also think that's actually then what gets us to amend the Constitution. It's when situations on the ground change that we move in that direction. My prediction is actually because of these efforts that I think are historically uh, necessary and have long historical precedent, we will also then eventually see constituencies build to change the, to amend the Constitution. I predict that in the next 20 years, as soon as I say this, it will be proven wrong, of course, but I predict in the next 20 years we'll have at least four constitutional amendments that start this way. The compact system will get us to amend the Constitution, not to eliminate the Electoral College, but to change it. I think we're going to get, uh, I think we are going to move toward an Equal Rights Amendment again. We're going to go in that direction. I think we are going to have, we're going to have an amendment on uh, health care as a right. Not necessarily a universal system, but health care as a right. Um, and we could go on and on down the list. And, and why do I think that? Because I think these situations are going to be negotiated anyway. And then the amendment will not be the change. The amendment will be actually just instituting that in a constitutional, in a constitutional way. I also think we're going to have two new states, right? We should already have these two states, Puerto Rico and D.C. That changes everything, too. That's another way, right? You get new senators, new electors. Um, that changes a lot. 
very much enjoying your talk. Thank you. Uh, it's, uh, for all of the historians in the uh, audience. Um, Are you one too? I, well, yes, but I, turn to poli sci. I mean, uh, you know, that's the, the cousin of, of history. Um, a, sort of a fun fact, fun opinion I would like from you. Um, we all know the presidents, uh, probably everybody in the room, basically from Eisenhower on, and of course there are the greats of uh, Washington, Jefferson, um, the Roosevelts, and Lincoln. Other than those, other than those, who do you think it was the most important and the most uh, and the best president, other than those that I've mentioned? Well, so most important and best could be two different things. Uh, James K. Polk is clearly one of the most important presidents uh, because of the Mexican-American War, right? Which um, you know has some insignificant effects on our country. You know, California, Arizona. <laughs> New Mexico, right? Uh, so Polk is incredibly important if we think about the growth of the United States as a territory, as a democracy. Uh, Polk also uh, refuses to serve more than one term. Really interesting. Polk's one of the few presidents who says, this is what I'm going to run to do, and once I've done this, I'm going to get the hell home. And that's what he did, right? In fact, it's amazing how many presidents actually run for re-election not really wanting to be re-elected, except you know, they're competitive, right, and they have obligations. Most people actually in the office, I make this point in the book, hate being president. You actually, the more you study this, you wonder why. It's a terrible job. It only looks really good once you're not doing it anymore. <laughs> right? Certainly George W. Bush feels that way, I'm sure. So Polk is definitely one of our most important and understudied. One of our best uh, presidents in terms of uh, in individuals, uh, I, I would say, is John Quincy Adams. Uh, he's not the most effective. But if you talk about someone who's well-informed, uh, you know, he had been with his dad negotiating in St. Petersburg. Uh, he had been in London. He had been in Belgium. Then he wrote the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, you could not be better informed. He was anti-slavery before most others were, right? He recognized, he opposed excessive expansion. I mean, it, when you read what uh, Quincy Adams wrote later on, you realize he was right on almost everything. But he was very ineffective at doing the kind of negotiating and the political work that others did. So not the most effective president, but one of the best. No, we don't. No, okay. Today at the City Club, we have been listening to a forum with Dr. Jeremy Surrey, the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office. Dr. Surrey appears as part of our Authors in Conversation series, supported in part by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We are grateful to all of the residents of Cuyahoga County for their support through this public grant. The community partner for today's forum is the League of Women Voters of Greater Cleveland, and our hospitality partner is the Metropolitan at the Nine. We appreciate your partnership. We welcome guests at a table hosted by Gallagher and students from Archbishop Hoban High School. Support for student participation in City Club forums comes from the William M. Weiss Foundation with additional support from donors you'll find listed in today's program. We're happy to have all of you here. The sale of Dr. Surrey's book, The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, is provided by a cultural exchange. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Dr. Surrey, and a special thanks to City Club members whose financial support makes our work possible. To find out more about upcoming forums and how you can support the City Club, visit us online at the City Club. This forum is now adjourned.
For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.